Welcome back to middle school. It's a zoo out there, so just be cool. Don't speak too loud. Try to fit in, but if you don't, then you can be in. everyone and welcome to the outfit repeaters an unofficial lizzie mcguire recap podcast i'm your host marissa Cantor, and with me as always is sam chung hello marissa and also everybody um marissa we are officially in like mid-series i'm calling it because it's not like mid-season it's like we're just between season one and season two we're mid-series yeah that feels like the right word yeah and so because we are mid-series, it seems like the perfect opportunity to stake, uh, stake, to take a step back and just, you know, take a beat before we dive into season two. Yeah, Sam has been really excited to plan some shenanigans. Yeah, I mean, rightly so. And I feel I, we have quite a movie. I went in with high hopes, but Rotten Tomatoes was there to temper them and... Honestly, we'll Rotten Tomatoes it. was generous, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite a film. I think the content is only going to go up from here, but this is where we're starting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you said you wanted to do this podcast a little differently. You wanted me to take more of the play-by-play, and you just wanted to react. And react you did as we watched it. <laughs> oh, my God. I wish, I mean, this is just a podcast, obviously, but I, I'm pretty sure some of my facial expressions were wild. Um, I was very engaged. I was very engaged. You were, you were an engaged <laughs> viewer. I think that uh, right off the bat, we should say that even though this is a PG podcast, some of the themes that we're going to be talking about in this episode are perhaps not PG, just based on the fact that this is an R-rated movie, and they really... <laughs> there are some crazy professions, um, circumstances that really warrant that R rating. So even though Marissa and I are very child-friendly people, this movie is not very child-friendly. No, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> so that's your trigger warning. <laughs> if you are underage, if you are a child, get out now. <laughs> <laughs> or at least know what you're walking into. Yeah. So like... I mean, I feel like we should just state some of those themes off the bat because that's what an actual trigger sure. warning is. Drug use, sex workers. <laughs> Incest? Oh, yeah. There's. The <laughs> oh, yeah. This movie has everything. <laughs> that was my Stefan of um, the day. Yeah. I would say I think abuse is fair to say. And just some, like, problematic AF disability stuff. Just Gordo being Gordo. Really disappointing. <laughs> yeah, this this film was, again, went into it with High Hopes, stacked cast, very Jewish, which we don't get too many of these, like, bizarre family films that also happen to be Jewish. And, like, the rep was there. It was taken to some stereotypical extremes, but I can set that aside because that, that I feel like that's just the nature of these movies and that, like... The creators and the cast 
were Jewish, so. Yes, so I don't know if we've mentioned this already, but the movie we're talking about today is called When Do We Eat? Um, We should probably have mentioned that from the top. We should, but, you know, I felt like getting the warning out there was the first most important thing. But just to backtrack a little, we're talking about the 2005 Salvador Litvak-directed film When Do We Eat? It was released in limited markets theatrically, and it grossed just over $430,000. Would you like to hear the first user review on IMDb? It is a 10-star rating. Oh, man, I would love to. All right, so here's the knowledge that we had going in. User review number one from March 23rd, 2005. A good movie about Jews for non-Jews. This movie uses humor, raw, sophisticated slapstick to detoxify Jewish stereotypes. It shows the origin of some of these stereotypes in easily understood terms. Fear, lust, resentment of parents, same as everybody else. The density of jokes per minute is enormous, sometimes two and three at a time. There's something to offend every Jew, initially, but the truth in the criticism is evident, too. Great acting performances, the actors are required to simulate so many intense emotions that a mediocre cast would have killed the movie. Because the movie is so funny, it can stand on its own as a comedy, but I think Jews will come out of it happier that they are Jews, and non-Jews will come out of it wanting to know Jews. (laughs) You're just kind of, (laughs) you're just kind of cocking your head to the side. It's like, I don't disagree, but like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, I think that (laughs) this person, this person has some valid thoughts. I agree that without the stellar cast, this movie could have been a whole lot worse. (laughs) And I agree that in some ways it did work to revert some of the stereotypes, but I feel like this movie is highlighting some of the good things that happened and just ignoring a lot of the things that made this movie just seem a little bit all over the place right because for me like we talked about this in our initial reactions like this movie just didn't know what it wanted to be yeah right like Mm -hmm. because on the one hand there were these like really beautiful moments of connection and like when the pieces come together that oh like this behavior comes from a place of trauma deep familial trauma and survivor's guilt Mm -hmm. and how that sort of like defines this entire like generation that survived the holocaust and like that comes from a really deep rooted place and that is why you know ira's dad is the way he is and that made ira the parent that he is and i thought that whole element of it like did add some depth to the story but like it wasn't i wish they took that further because it felt like it kind of came at me in a way where, like, crazy shit was happening. And, like, it detracted from the good moments for me. Yeah. So we found this movie because it is from the Adam Lamberg <laughs> filmography. And it's one of the few things that he did post Lizzie McGuire. And I think that was the reason we found it initially. As we know, because we just saw his bar mitzvah, Adam Lamberg is Jewish. And so it makes sense that he is now here at Passover. At Passover. And I was excited, too, because, like, I love Passover. I am a Passover dork. Like, it's always been my favorite holiday to celebrate. I love the customs of it. I love the food. I love, like, Passover seders were just, my family's not super religious, um, but Passover 
Crusaders were always like a staple of my upbringing. So it's like a Passover movie that I didn't know about. <laughs> what? And I mean, like all of the Passover stuff they got right. I mean, it's a film by Jews with Jews. So yeah, that was all there. It, it was all there. Should we start to dive in? Yeah, I suppose. So this movie has a big cast. There's a lot of characters in this movie. Yeah, and we um, are introduced to them with, I don't know if I can call this a trope, but it feels a little tropey. It's like, mom needs the matzah. Yeah. <laughs> and we get like the one character calls another character who then calls another character. That's a trope, right? I think it is. It's a good way to introduce characters when there's a lot of characters because it's like a short little um, vignette into their lives. And so you sort of get a baseline for each one of these characters. I think that the problem, one of the problems of this movie is that it centers around the patriarch of the family, Ira, Michael Lerner, and he has a problem with each of these relationships. And so I feel like when you have so many relationships in a movie, and I think you see this especially in movies like, you know, Valentine's Day or New Year's Eve or Love Actually. It's just there's so many vignettes and so many relationships happening that some of the relationships are not explored as in-depth as if maybe you had focused on maybe one or two key relationships and then the other characters are just, you know, they maybe they don't need to have a very complex relationship. They're just kind of there for comedic effect or they're just, you know, they, like you don't need to necessarily, I feel like, have these deep moments with all of them because especially in a movie that's only what, an hour and a half? This was a pretty short movie. It's just not enough time. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that there was so much going on and a lot. it led to a lot of loose ties at the end. Loose ends to tie up. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I think <that laughs> it's early. Um, before we meet any of the family, we dive headfirst into a volcano and we get some like history of Passover in yeah. fiery letters. Yeah, we get some title cards. Was there anything notable, did you think, about the title cards that we should mention here? I didn't write down what they said, but it seemed pretty standard. I think it very much evoked um, the Ten Commandments. Cinematically, the music, the volcano. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that was the intention of that opening. Correct. Um, and by the Ten Commandments, I mean, like, the original 1950s, the movie. Yeah. Okay, so then... Although this movie centers around Ira, Ira Stuckman, played by Michael Lerner, the first character to whom we are introduced is actually Zeke, one of Ira's children, played by Ben Feldman. Oh, love me some Ben Feldman. Ben Feldman carried this movie on his back. He was excellent. So Zeke, it seems, is in high school, and his character trait is that he is a stoner. Throughout the entire movie, he's wearing a shirt with the numbers 420 on the front and the <laughs> words 420 on the back. So if you were unclear about his attitude towards drugs, it is pro-drugs. It is. And <laughs> yeah, and in the opening scene, he is buying ecstasy. He is. He's underneath the bleachers buying ecstasy when he gets a call from his mom and he takes it. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to take his call um, at this drug deal. And Which is like the first out of character thing he does. Correct. And his mom, named Peggy, played by Leslie Ann Warren, wants him to get matzah on his way home. But it is Passover today. Yeah, it's like, girl, you know how this goes. You can't do that. <laughs> yeah. You got to have your matzah stash. Yeah, we get what 
I don't know if it's a just a hypothetical or maybe if it's a flashback, but we get a flashback kind of thing where Ben Feldman is getting matzah on Passover at a grocery store maybe in the past, and it's anarchy. It's crazy. Yeah. So Do this we is, know where they live? Like where in the world? I don't know that we know where they live. They live somewhere near the water, maybe Long Island. Who knows? That matters. Because like in my situation, my upbringing, the, the problem would be more like, oh, this place doesn't have it because there are not Jewish people here. Yeah. So Long Island feels right to me. It would need to be a place where there would be that rush for matzah, you know? It was actually filmed in L.A. So maybe it could also be L.A. Who knows? But nonetheless, Ben Feldman is not going to go get matzah for Passover. So then mom has to call Ira, played by Michael Lerner, the patriarch of the family. So we're finally introduced to Ira. And we get Ira in his place of work. Yeah, it was a little jarring, to say the least. (laughs) Yes, Ira has started his own business. Despite the fact that generations of Stuckmans before him have made hats, he does not want to make hats. He now owns a Christmas paraphernalia business that it seems makes Christmas ornaments, possibly Christmas trees, but not sure. But they definitely make Christmas ornaments. And plot twist, Oscar from The Office works there. That was a plot twist. (laughs) Yeah, that really um, struck me because why? Like of all the things, was this like a way to make the Gentiles more comfortable? Maybe. it's And even though it's April, Christmas music apparently plays there all the time. All year, yeah. We're getting a full blast of Deck the Halls. It was not what I was expecting and it was not what I needed. And then the reason comes out later, like the reason why. But we'll get to that when we get to it. But I definitely like the more I think about it is like, oh, like trying to appeal to a non-Jewish audience by like Jewish people working in a Christmas business. I don't know. I mean, I have I have like complicated feelings about that. I mean, as our number one reviewer said, non-Jews will come out of it wanting to know Jews. So, you know, they need an in first. Um, oh, that's so anti-Semitic, though. It is. Only 29 out of 45 people found that review helpful. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Vague anti-Semitism. Hate it. All right. So now Michael Lerner, or rather Ira, I should use their character names. Ira is now has the responsibility of getting the matzah, but he doesn't want it. He's going to pass it off to somebody else. And the first person that he's going to try to pass it off to is his daughter, played by Sherry Appleby. Her name is Nicole, Nikki. And we immediately get some insight into her profession. How would you describe her profession? It's like she's like a very hands-on sex therapist. That's You took the words right out of my mouth. So we get her, and she's in bed with a man. and Fully clothed. Fully clothed. And it seems like they're working on his stamina. And he makes it two buttons. He has no stamina. (laughs) It seems like that's progress for him, though. And Cheery Appleby, Nikki, says, good work. Good work. That was good progress today. Yeah, she's like, next week we'll 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 make it to four buttons. (laughs) (laughs) Um, These are shirt buttons, by the way. (laughs) Just the shirt. Yeah, just the shirt. Nowhere near the pants yet. Nope. And... Apparently, she has her own. This is good. She has her own business, and this is actually something that Ira respects. He likes that Nikki has her own business, and it's called Nikki's Place. And I guess the motto is, She'll make a man out of you. 
not Guarantee to it. not to get too Mulan of it all. <laughs> <laughs> but she will make a man out of you. And apparently she has all kinds of ideas about where her business will go. But this is her business right now. And immediately after this encounter is when she receives the call from Ira um, about getting matzah. But she can't. If she does that, she's going to be late. Here is where we get the first hint of sort of the, I guess you could say the A story of like the tension between Ira and his son, Ethan. That's true. Yeah, Nicole mentions really quickly that Ira's just nervous about Ethan. That's why he's so sort of uptight right now. I don't know. Anything else to say about Nikki? Not yet. Not yet? You don't have any any gut character thoughts on Nikki? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I think I have, like, the least to say about Nikki of all the characters, just generally. Like, yeah. she's the most, like, she's just kind of their character. For sure. All right. So next, Ira's going to call his father. Incredible. His father's name is Artur, and Artur is played by... Uh, Jack Klugman, and he answers, he's at Muscle Beach playing Mahjong. He's excellent. He might be my favorite character. I needed subtitles for him. Yeah. (laughs) Outside, I mean, like, Ben Feldman is top tier, but then Grandpa really, like, rounds it out. Yeah. Grandpa doesn't take shit from anybody. No, he doesn't. (laughs) But he also has some deep-rooted trauma. Yeah, but anyways, Ira asks him to go get matzah for them, and he's incredulous. They'll double the price. Ah! <laughs> Ira says that he'll front the money, but Artur is still like, no, don't really want to do that. And then he goes on a rant about Nazis, about how, you know, they're always coming to get him. He has this air of paranoia a little bit. Yeah, he asks Ira if he has a plan for when they poison the water. Mm. Yeah, so immediately you're like, okay, something's going on with Grandpa. Yeah, but it seems like it's there for comedic effect a little bit. Yeah, that it was it was off-putting to me at first. And I think, again, that's like the root problem with this movie is like in it having no idea what it wants to be. And like you take these things as like insensitive jokes, but then it gets really like, deep later like it just i don't know the tone was inconsistent Mm -hmm. um so yeah at first i was like uh okay moving on yep so grandpa is not going to go get the matzah so now ira's gonna call jen his semi-estranged daughter from his first marriage and now he wants jen to get the matzah for the family jen it seems is somebody who who types up captions live that seems to be her job. And so we learn now that this is the first Seder that they've had in three years because apparently the one three years ago went very poorly. We'll dive into that later. Uh, but she is very upset about this, but she reluctantly agrees to buy the matzah for Ira. And as they end the phone call, uh, she accidentally types, hates your father into the captions. So we get a small bit of insight into their relationship there. Very on the nose. Yes. And yeah, and then Jen calls her girlfriend, wife, and I romantic with, partner. I went with wife, but partner. We'll go partner. With partner. Sure. Initially, good stuff. Initially, good stuff. So, and I forgot to. So I think that's the whole vibe of this movie. It's like initially okay, good stuff, and then it just goes off the rails. Yeah. So Jen is played by Meredith Scott Lynn. And her partner, Grace, is played by Cinda Williams. So Jen is going to, as you said, hand off the responsibility to Grace. 
the one person who is not Jewish who's yeah. coming to this Seder. Did we yeah. mention that already? We did not, but important she is to not, mention. She is not Jewish. She is very Christian, we will learn. <laughs> yeah, it gets very um, take me to church. Yes. Um, gospel-y. Gospel-y, yeah. I mean, it's also worth noting that, yeah, Grace is not white. And then Grace just gets the matzah. It's really that easy. All of the people of this family are just lazy. Yeah. <laughs> Problem solved. Problem solved. Like 10 minutes later. All right, so then we're going to cut to the end of the day. Iris at home. They're getting ready for the Seder. And he wants to put a family photo on the wall. But the family photo he wants to put up is a black and white photo of his family, like him as a child, his brothers and sisters, and his mom and dad. He wants to put that on the wall. But to do it, he's going to need to replace one of the photos of his own children. Yeah, so it's like, which child are you replacing? Yes, and we're going to learn that this is actually like a very sad photo. Yeah. It's apparently the only photo that they have of Ira's family. Yeah, and I think, you know, another trigger point that is worth mentioning is the sort of Holocaust trauma survivor's guilt thing. That is going to be a big part of the movie. It's also something worth stating Yes. at the top before we really dive into that that piece. Yeah. Peggy doesn't want, you know, certain photos moved. They end up just taking down the photo of Zeke, <laughs> which... You know, he doesn't seem to really care or notice, but it ends up not being in the center. It ends up being a little bit to the side. And so symbolism. And so obviously when grandpa arrives, he's upset about that. He's like, why'd you demote them or whatever? I've never seen or like, sorry, I just have something to say. I never have seen or like known that people like actively change the pictures on their walls for different occasions. You just not look at the pictures. I mean, like that just struck me. Like, I don't know. My family has never changed the pictures on the walls. Well, it seems like they only do this for Passover. Apparently, like, when Passover comes around, like, Ira's family photo needs to be on the wall. I respect that. I've just never <laughs> seen, like, it. <laughs> maybe, you, maybe your family, like, a lot of the photos on your wall are from when you were, like, six or seven. It's very dated. They could be, they could be updated. Yeah. It's like we would get school photos every year, and at one point she just got too lazy to, like... Was this around puberty? She changed. was like, it's not worth it. <laughs> Yeah, I think, like, the photo is in my living room. I'm in fifth grade, and my sister's in third grade. Oh, it really grade. is right before puberty. And then downstairs in the basement, it's, like, my sixth grade photo and her fourth grade photo. And that's the last time. And, like, it was, like, during my awkward stage, and I have feelings about that. Well, I mean, you're out of your awkward stage now. Maybe you're right. Maybe you now that you've photo. seen this movie, it can inspire your mom to change out some <laughs> of those photos for, like, you as an adult human. Yeah, like, I have some good photos now. Yeah, you dress up, you know? You look like a lady. <laughs> Unrelated plug. One of my coworkers found this website where you can pay $80 and become a Scottish lord or lady over two square feet of Scottish Highland. It is something I'm highly considering. I don't hate that. Then you could be Lady Marissa, and I could be Lord Sam of random place in Scotland. <laughs> I would love to be a lady. I want to be a dame. That might take some more work. <laughs> I will never. I don't know that you can just buy that. I also think you have to be British, so I think I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. All right, so people are beginning to arrive, and the first people who are going to arrive are Jen and Grace. With the matzah. Yes, with the matzah. They come bearing gifts. And they're early, I guess, but not super early because almost immediately after they arrive, uh, Grandpa arrives, or Artur, and... I'm going to call him Grandpa. Yeah, let's just call him Grandpa. And Zeke gets home from school as well, 
he's eating potato chips, but immediately has them taken away by Peggy because they're not kosher, which apparently yeah. is news to everybody that they're now kosher. Yeah. He's like, since when do we give a crap? And then there's like a chain of like Ira pinches Zeke's <laughs> ear and then grandpa pinches Ira's ear. Yeah. There's some generational ear pinching. <laughs> immediately after this, we get the title of the movie, which is said many times and it seems always by Jen, which is when do we eat? The table's not even set yet. When do we eat? Grandpa said it once, too. Did he say it once? Uh, I noticed Jen saying it the most times. But they're not ready to eat yet, you know? They have... A lot of people <laughs> they have still a need lot to of show people up. To, a lot of people need to show up, and there's still a lot of prep work to go into the meal. On Peggy's request, Ira's going to lecture Zeke for skipping school and buying drugs, and then he demands that Zeke perform a drug test right now. <laughs> yeah. But Zeke is prepared for this, and he's got a bag of fake urine to really just get around that test i don't know zeke seems pretty well adjusted it doesn't seem like i don't i don't know it seemed like the concerns about zeke's drug use kind of fluctuate from very extreme to not at all yeah i feel like we didn't know him enough at this point to like understand the need for like a pretty intense like (laughs) well it's also like the family attitude towards drugs i feel like is all over the place like are they very hardcore no drugs Because then Vanessa, who we'll meet later, is very like, oh, don't worry, just roll with it. This is just what happens. Very unclear. Okay, so Zeke is going to pass his drug test because he's got some fake urine stashed. Okay, so now we're introduced to Lionel, played by Adam Lamberg, the reason that we found this movie in the first place. And Lionel's at the kitchen table playing a game on his computer. An, An iBook. And he's obsessed with the number seven. And because of this, people are giving him receipts with the number seven circled. And we are we get the impression that Lionel is on the spectrum. Yeah. And like pretty severely autistic at that. Yes. Lionel's or Adam Lamberg's hair has really grown out since Lizzie McGuire. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's got some locks in the Lizzie McGuire movie. It's pretty like Jufro, but it's beyond that. Like he just has like. Like down to the shoulders. Yeah, it's like some Tyler and Big Brother hair. <laughs> Obscure reference. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very long hair. He's he's really let it grow out. So then we get uh, an entrance, a quick entrance from Vanessa. Vanessa is played by, I believe her name is Millie Avital, and she's running in real quick. She's on the phone pretty much this entire movie because her profession is that she is a celebrity publicist, and Zeke tells her that she looks hot which is a little weird because she is i guess peggy's cousin but it won't be the weirdest relationship that she has with a member of this family she is a cousin once removed but still a cousin that's still a cousin still a cousin we had to we like we were like what does that mean yeah specifically? I, yeah you always hear like once removed twi- like what does removed really mean she's peggy's cousin which in china Maybe the once removed just equates to like you're an aunt or an uncle, essentially. They're like, they're still closely related. Yeah, they share a grandparent. <laughs> they share, yeah, they share a grandparent. So there's that. Yeah. More to come. <laughs> okay, so now Nikki arrives and she's got another receipt for Lionel. So he's getting receipts left and right. And then Nikki and Zeke get into an argument, you know, just a your normal sibling argument about fake boobs and masturbating. Standard. Yeah, standard. So then Ira starts talking about Lionel. He says that Lionel is an idiot savant. That's apparently like his favorite thing to say about Lionel because Ira believes that even though 
Lionel's on the spectrum. He's some sort of secret genius. Yeah. I think you you kind of skimmed over the part where Nikki says hi to Jen and Grace and is happy for their relationship. Oh, I didn't take note. I didn't take a note on that. What? what and yeah, offers um, offers them some lesbian sex tapes, essentially, if they need to like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just if they're if they're interested, she has some stuff. Right. And this is the first bit of tension that we get between Nikki and Jen, which we'll get more of later. <laughs> Yeah. They don't get along very much. Anyways, Ira tries to eat a little bit. He's hungry now, but Peggy immediately stops him. It hasn't been koshered, and they're going to eat soon. How do you kosher something? If something is not kosher, how can it become kosher? Doesn't it have to be kosher already? I'm confused a little bit. This is like speculation, but I don't know if she just means that like it hasn't been blessed. Like they haven't said the prayers to eat. Because all the ingredients would have had to be kosher. Right. So that would inherently make whatever it is kosher. I think she just likes to use kosher in situations where that's not the right word. Like, I've never heard anyone say it hasn't been koshered. I've never heard that before. Interesting. The only way you could take two things that are kosher and make them not kosher is, like, in the cooking process. Because kosher is, like, you keep meat and dairy separate. Mm-hmm. So you could take two kosher things, a meat and a dairy, and combine it, no longer kosher. If you separate them again, would they now be koshered? No. So once it's unkoshered, that's it. That's it. That's it. It can't be kosher. <laughs> that's it. You broke the law. You, bro- <laughs> you fought the law. The law won. Boom. Ira has a plan, we learned, to run the world's fastest satyr. He's going to get through this so fast. He doesn't want to mess around. He's hungry. Satyrs aren't even that long. I'm just saying. <laughs> like, it's not... Well, whatever. Never, however long it is, Ira will be faster. I've never thought of a Passover Seder as a long and arduous process, even as a kid. All right. We're almost done introducing characters. Oh the next character to... And you ar- thought this podcast wouldn't be, would be <laughs> short. The next character to arrive is the prodigal son, Ethan, played by Max Greenfield. Prodigal son. And he arrives... Blessing the house, nailing... What's he nailing into the... A mezuzah. A mezuzah? What is that? What is it? Yes, what is that? Um, Yeah, in in Hebrew, mezuzah means doorpost. And basically, it's like a wooden piece that is nailed to a Jewish home, to the door. And inside, there's a tiny scroll with um, a specific line from the Torah. And you always um, tilt the mezuzah... In the direction that so it's like facing Israel. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's just like a staple sort of. Um, it adorns Ju- nice. a Jewish home. So yeah, Ethan is nailing one of those to the door frame, and big news, big development in Ethan's life. He's Hasidic now. He's Hasidic now. Um, it's interesting that they brought this sort of representation in. I, as like a super reform, super secular Jew, don't know enough about the Hasidic community to like speak to what Hasidic Judaism is in any meaningful way. I'm just like, I just wanted to state that from the jump because I know like one Jewish person can't speak for like Judaism's not a monolith, yada, yada. I don't know everything. Just wanted to put that out there that I'm just really going off of like what I'm seeing in the movie and like the interactions that I have had with Hasidic Jews in real life. I just thought that it was important to say that. There's a lot of stereotyping within the Hasidic community. There's a lot of um, there's a lot to say about like the 
structure within a Hasidic community and how like antiquated it is. But as someone who's not part of that community, I just like don't feel comfortable. Totally. But I mean, Ethan, it's hard to tell, I think, in this movie, right, whether he actually believes this very strongly or if he's just doing this to really annoy Ira. I think that he believes it because it's a very like intense sect of Judaism. It's It's very intense, but it doesn't take much for him to be pulled out of it. Well, I mean, (laughs) lust. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And he's only, you know, he's only been in it for three years. He was was tempted and he couldn't resist. I think maybe at first it was probably to annoy Ira, but you can become fairly indoctrined, let's just say. Um, So I do think that it comes from a place of, like, I think he does believe it now. Maybe he didn't at first. He hasn't grown his hair out. Is that part of being Hasidic? I I guess not. I mean, I think that's a very, like, he, he looks like traditionally like how you would picture a Hasidic person, the whole outfit. So this is where we get sort of the backstory into Ira's most strenuous relationship with a member of his family that he has, and that is with his son, Ethan, I believe the oldest son. And so apparently at the last Seder, Ethan, at that time not Hasidic, a very successful entrepreneur, businessman kind of person, got into a fight with Ira. Ira threw a plate at him, and I guess that's why they haven't had a Seder in three years. Not just any plate, the Seder plate. Sorry, yes, the Seder. He threw the Seder plate at Ethan, and it was, they don't get along. Yeah, I don't know if you know the meaning of the Seder plate. Not especially. It's not it just, seems like it's very important. It's not just It's not just any plate. It's Seder plate. What does Ethan say about the Seder plate? He has a line about it, about how it's like the holiest thing in a Jewish home. I didn't write down any specific lines here. Like, yeah, we, were going, we were just kind of rolling yeah. through this movie. Yeah, so... A Seder plate, it has little, like, each part is sectioned off into its own divot, almost like a divot, right? Like, so there's a separation between each item. And on the Seder plate, there are a bunch of different foods that are symbolic of the story of Passover and, like, Moses's exodus. And you go through each of the items on the plate, say some prayers, you know. It's like a very, it is the center of the Seder. It's very important. Mm-hmm. And Ira just smashed it. Like, no respect. So much drama. Wow. <laughs> I haven't played any clips yet. I mean, just because we don't talk about Lizzie McGuire doesn't mean we can't have some Lizzie McGuire clips. I mean, that was kind of the old tension. Now there's tension because Ira feels it seems like maybe Ethan's newfound devotion is disingenuous. I mean, Ira knows that the only reason that this is really happening is because Ethan lost his job and lost all his money. And he's upset because he goes around Iris back to ask Peggy for money, which Peggy, I guess, just subsidizes to him. You can't have a movie about Jews without having, you know, money stuff. Oh, you got to have that money stuff. Ugh. Not to mention, oh, I was going to say, I was going to, I was going to spoil. spoil Lionel's story, but you know. <laughs> it always makes me pause um, when I think about representation and like, I think about when Jewish people use anti-Semitic tropes to mm-hmm. try to like you know, subvert them or dispel them. Most recently, I think the last movie that made me feel a certain way was Uncut Gems in a similar way. And I know that like a lot of um, Jewish people really loved that movie and loved the representation. And it was very like overwhelmingly praised. 
And again, with like a Jewish team behind it. I liked that movie too. I know you liked that movie. That movie was a little too. That's their um, style. Chaotic for me. They, um, they make chaotic. The Safdie brothers make chaotic movies. It was a little too much for me. I think like too much stimuli happening. Um, but the point is, I see the value in like if anybody should be able to, you know, use these tropes, it's absolutely Jewish people. But then I think about like who will then be viewing it as the audience. And like, I don't know if like a non-Jewish audience is able to unpack it. Like, I don't know if it just like feeds into anti-Semitism more, even though that's obviously not the intention. Yeah, that makes sense. So I always have like complicated and like the money stuff in this movie evoked a similar, a similar feeling. Like I understand what was trying to happen, but there are so many people who have never even met a Jewish person. And if like, this is the first sort of thing you're seeing with a Jewish person, you're going to take what you see at face value is what I'm trying to say. I mean, you can rest assured though, no one saw this movie. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, this is maybe a bigger problem for Uncut Gems. But yeah, that is my tangent on (laughs) intent versus reaction. As part of his newfound devotion to his religion, he cannot touch any women who are not related to him. Yeah. This is why he won't give Grace a hug or handshake. Yeah, and that is, that's a thing. It's real. You were, you were very like, that was jarring to you. I didn't know that. Yeah, um, there's a lot of very, um, like I said, deeply antiquated I mean, I feel like it's fair to say sexist pieces of, like, Hasidic culture. I mean, like, we experienced it firsthand with our former landlords who, like, if we were together speaking to them, they would only, like, really address you and make eye contact with you. Mm -hmm. Um, I've experienced it in my professional, like, my day job. That is a thing. You just kind of have to be respectful of it. But it's real. It's not just for comedic effect, I guess. Yeah. Although in this movie, it is for comedic effect. Yeah. So we have one more character to introduce. Not a member of the family. A man comes in from the backyard. He's been setting up the tent that they're going to have Seder in. Yes, because um, their home is not kosher enough for Ethan. Yeah. So this this whole ceremony is because of Ethan. Yes. The reason they're having it this way. But this man's name is Rafi, like the singer. He has an eye patch. <laughs> He's played by Mark Ivanier. Um, it's unexplained. It's unexplained. I mean, it's unexplained, but he does. He have rocks a mi- it. Yeah. I mean, he does need it. One of his eyes is clearly blind. Peggy, it seems he's Peggy's hired help. And they may or may not at this time have a thing going on, but they definitely will later on in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some tension between him and Ira. Ira does not want him to stay for Seder, but Peggy is very much like, you're staying, and so he's staying. Which is weird. And Peggy goes up to get him one of Ira's shirts to wear, so that just, I think, adds to the tension. Yeah. All right, so now I think we've met all the characters. We've pretty much set up all of their miscellaneous relationships with each other. The plot of this movie is not very involved, so I feel like we should just kind of breeze through the rest of this. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. All right, so boom. All the characters have been introduced. Ethan, you know, gets in contact with Vanessa in the backyard, and we learned that even though they're cousins, they have a history. Yes. Um, There's very clear sexual tension there. Uh, We get a flashback and learn that they are cousins once removed. 
WTF question mark. And that is where my written notes end because <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> you, you, too, you just stopped after that. I just stopped. I was just like, I don't even know where to go from here. This is going off the rails. Okay. Um, so incest. And yeah, that's when I was out. <laughs> For sure. Moving on. So that's going to set up maybe some later things that are going to happen. Okay, so now they're all in the tent. And, you know, Iris getting Iris stressed out by the events of the night. And he asks Zeke to go get him an antacid. This is kind of where it all starts to... It, it all starts to go off the rails from here because Zeke goes to the bathroom to get the antacid. And he's about to take the ecstasy himself. But... He has a better idea. He's a better idea. He's just, he's mad at Ira. Ira's just being annoying. Well, I mean, not especially with Zeke. He's being annoying with everybody. But, you know, with Zeke, it's the whole, like, really annoying him about his drug abuse, et cetera, et cetera. He calls him a, a yutz. And Zeke's like, I'm not a yutz. And so he just puts the ecstasy right into that antacid. Yeah, he's like, you prick. <laughs> <laughs> and takes it back out to the tent. And Ira downs it. Yeah, in one fell swoop. And as he does it, a song called Lord Get Me High plays. <laughs> <laughs> Super on the, I mean, the song takes on a whole new meaning, <laughs> I think, in this context. Inside the tent, they're having a debate about, you know, wearing a yarmulke, but Grace is down for it. And they argue about, like, the purpose of wearing a yarmulke at this time. I feel like at times the dinner became very much just, like, explaining what Passover is, which yeah. I feel like happened a little bit at this time. It felt like this movie, and here's the thing, I'm, I'm having this like epiphany right now. It felt like this movie tried too hard to, like you said, explain itself and maybe try to appeal to a non-Jewish audience. But like, I don't think that that was the way to go. I think you need to know your audience here. And like, I mean, I feel like of the $400,000 that it made, I feel like this was a movie that Jewish people went to see. Yeah, you know, I agree. So I don't I don't know if you needed to like lean so hard into like the educational aspects because I just don't think that was your audience. Nonetheless, we got it. There's a lot of going back and forth about like Ethan wants to do a melody, but Iris like, no, I can't do a melody and also have this be the fastest seder ever. Yeah, like I mean, and honestly, like Ethan wants to do you know the actual like the Hebrew parts of the seder, and that's not even like a Hasidic thing. That's just like. A Passover Seder. Like. Well, Ira does not. While this is all happening, Lionel Adam Lamberg is cutting up an orange and using toothpicks to turn it into a bridge <laughs> <laughs> as part of, you know, just an autistic episode that he's having. You know, Peggy lights the candle, says a prayer. Vanessa ends up having to take a phone call and leaving the tent. It's, yeah, it's a very chaotic scene inside the tent. Then they talk about this ritual about hiding the matzah. Yeah, the afikomen. The afikomen. Big deal. Which apparently they don't do anymore because in the past it's gone horribly wrong. Again, a result of Ethan and Ira's tension with each other. Yeah, I mean, the afikomen is really for children. So the fact that like, <laughs> like there are no young children at this Seder. But yeah, you break the you break the matzah in half for the afikomen and you hide half of it somewhere in your home. And whoever finds it first gets a prize. It's like the Jewish Easter egg hunt. I see. But just for one singular afikomen. It's like hide and seek, but with matzah. But I guess in the past, Ethan has tried to fake finding it by just breaking another piece of matzah and presenting that. That's honestly the move. <laughs> the tension continues to build. 
Ira's upset about Ethan's consistent interjections. He says that what Ethan's doing is not Judaism, it's New Age psychobabble, as opposed to what he's doing, which is just the world's fastest Seder, (laughs) (laughs) which is skipping random pages of what they're supposed to be doing. We learn that Ira's also mad because apparently Ethan, he sent Ethan to Stanford and he went for three years and then quit the fourth year. So he never actually graduated. Yeah. Can we assume that that's when his, whatever his business was took off? I mean, I think, yeah, we can assume that before he lost all his money and ended up in his current situation. Then we get a random interjection from Nikki. She's very passionate about her job and she's planning on launching a remotely controlled cyber sexual experience for the homebound. I mean... Little would she know that 15 years later, that's what many people would need. (laughs) (laughs) Truly ahead of her time. (laughs) So then Nikki and Peggy argue about Nikki's profession because Peggy is really just like, you're a sex worker. She doesn't respect what she does. And Ira stands up for her. And Peggy is upset because she thinks that Ira is just, you know, supporting this endeavor. Nikki points out that Rafi is Peggy's gigolo. And that just creates more more fighting amongst all of them. And then Ira and Rafi get into a fight and Rafi starts choking Ira and Ira, it feels like he's having a heart attack. Yeah. And at this moment, as he's having a heart attack, Zeke admits, I gave you ecstasy. I drugged you. I drugged you. (laughs) It really just came out. (laughs) It didn't take much, but everybody now knows that Ira has been drugged. And then he tries to attack Zeke. (laughs) I mean, he gets over that heart attack real fast and just goes for Zeke. He grabs a bunch of horseradish and just sticks it into Zeke's mouth. Yeah, that's really harsh. Oh, the pain. That's like pretty abusive, actually. (laughs) This is aversion therapy. (laughs) That would burn. Okay, so yeah, things are really starting to go off the rails, or rather continuing to go off the rails. Lionel is having a serious episode, so Nikki takes him inside to calm him down. She ends up just kind of like stroking his hair as he goes seven dwarfs and starts saying like seven whatever things. Yeah. Um, she has sort of like a, a reckoning with her profession and like what is she doing, but it doesn't really amount to anything ultimately. She kind of just has this inner, mon- inner dialogue and then yeah. it's never really addressed again. Yeah, so then with everything going on inside the tent... Ethan and Vanessa find time to have a moment, and he can't help himself. Yeah. He's going to succumb to the sin of lust. Yeah, he gets into that lust real quick. Yeah, they go into Ira's office, and they get it on. They do. Yeah, I mean, it's incest, (laughs) right? It is incest, but that's okay because he will repent at Yom Kippur. (laughs) That that (laughs) makes it all okay. Ugh, I feel like it's similar to, like, a super like ultra evangelical perspective too, where men feel like they're they're so like self-righteous and so, but when they mess up, it's like, oh, well. I I can just fix it like that. This is just part of the process. I can repent. I can pray. I can basically do whatever I want because I'll find a way to justify it. Um, Also in all the commotion, Nikki and Jen find a moment to have a small argument. A little tiff. A little tiff. Jen is pretty bitter towards most of the family because after Ira left her mom, she and her mom were forced to, I guess, live in kind of like a a small apartment situation. So, you know, the rest of the family is much more privileged than Jen ever was. Jen is kind of estranged from the rest of them. Yeah. And like, again, make it about the money. I don't know. I would have appreciated it so much more if it like delved a little deeper into like, you know, the abandonment part and less about the like 
physical circumstances that it left them in. Yeah. All right. So everybody's having these moments, whatever, moments of arguments, moments of coming together. (laughs) 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 It took you a second. (laughs) Good one. But they all make their way back into the tent, and now they're going to read the four questions. Or rather, Zeke has to read the four questions. He takes objection to that because the youngest person should have to read the four questions, and Lionel is technically the youngest. But Lionel is autistic, we think this time all right so the ecstasy is really starting to kick in for ira the tent is starting to you know become really like psychedelic and moving around he's starting to see the light like come out of his fingers and out of random places in the table like he's really starting to trip i feel like we also left out the fact that there is like a whole ass rotisserie lamb cooking outside of the tent (laughs) We may Over have, a fire. Yeah, we may have left that out. So yeah, even if they wanted to eat, they still have to wait for this whole lamb to cook. <laughs> so yeah, in his tripping, Ira sort of flashes back to a scene with his brothers, or his brother, his one brother that he really sort of has a tempestuous relationship with. He's flipping him off. And in real life, it cuts back and he's frozen there, like flipping off <laughs> just nobody. So Ira's tripping real hard. He starts to picture that they're in the desert and God is coming. And Ethan realizes that Ira thinks he's Moses and he's finally feeling God, which is a good thing. Um, They continue to read parts of the Seder and Ira starts going around child by child and like having a moment with each of them. He ends up apologizing kind of to Zeke and he goes over to Jen. He tells her that she's not left out and he apologizes for not being there for her when she was growing up. But he wants her to know that there's a new Ira in town, and he hopes that she can forgive him, and she cannot. No. She tries, maybe half tries, but ultimately she's like, no, it's too little, too late. You're a bad person. I have nothing to add. Okay. (laughs) Um, Then Grandpa goes off about all of the random people who who want to kill Jews. He starts talking about all of their ancestors that died in the Holocaust, Then he and Ethan argue about whether, like, the concept of joy is what could save humanity. Ethan is a strong believer that if everybody just felt a little more joy, then everybody would be happier. People wouldn't be angry with each other. They wouldn't be killing each other. And that's all the world needs. It's just a little more joy. But Grandpa is like, no, people suck. I mean, 15 years later, Grandpa's (laughs) not wrong. Yeah, Grandpa's seen a thing or two. And he's not going to let this young idealist, you know, just try to talk him out of it. But yeah, this is like the start of when the tone of the movie starts to shift. Because then we start to really dive into some of the trauma that really surrounds this whole family. Because we learn that, you know, the reason that Ira has left the hat making business after six generations of Stuckmans have made hats is because the family that hid him during World War II gave him a Christmas ornament as a present. And so he's always had this emotional attachment to Christmas ornaments, and that's kind of why it's something that he wanted to do now, because it gave him a little bit of hope and joy, and I guess he wants to give that back to other people as well. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's the reason he's alive. I'm realizing as I'm talking about this, like, I actually, I like some of the messages in this movie. It's just like, it was too chaotic as I was watching it. Like, as I'm explaining it, I'm like explaining it. I'm like, yeah, that's a good thing. Uh, Or like that part of it is like a a really emotional, touching thing. But then I think back to actually the experience of watching the movie. And I'm like, I, as a viewer, me explaining it is better for you. 
than you're sitting down to watch the movie. No, I agree. I think that's kind of what I said at the top, too. There are these, like, really beautiful moments buried in a chaotic disaster. Well, just wait. If you thought it was already chaotic, it's going to get more chaotic because Jen is going to have a mic drop moment where she calls out each one of the children, including Ethan, for having sex with Vanessa right now. Boom. Boom. Mic drop. Yeah. That was BTS. <laughs> so yeah, Peggy is very upset about this. She set up a tent. She made everything kosher. She went, she bent over backwards. She roasted a lamb. To make this Seder to Ethan's desire. And Ethan is just going around having sex with her cousin again. <laughs> again. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't know that it's again. She thinks this is the first, like, it's bad enough, you know, oh the one time. God. But again, is just so... Peggy is out. She's done. She quits. And then she goes and makes out with Rafi (laughs) as she eats macaroons directly out of a tub of macaroons. That's so relatable. (laughs) The macaroon part. Grace. This is when Grace has her like Jesus loves y'all speech. Yeah. Jen is like wrong crowd. (laughs) That part was funny. Yeah. Grace is like, you know what? This is a good family. Jesus loves you. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. She learns that the Last Supper was a Seder. She's like, right on. (laughs) (laughs) Checks out. That's just enough time for Peggy, you know, who's just made out with Rafi to cool down a little bit, make it back into the tent. Peggy makes a speech about how she's been a a slave to this family for 30 years, and now she's done. That's it. You know what? Yeah, this family is her pharaoh. That keeps coming up now for the rest of the movie. Like, who is this person's pharaoh? Yeah. Who is the oppression? I Yeah, I don't know. But regardless, Peggy, she's just like, you know what? I don't need to do this anymore. I don't need to do this. Yeah, she I can has be done. a Joe McGuire moment. Literally. It's like... It's like, I'm done. Yeah. Lionel's freaking out. And the reason why is because for years and years and years... He has pretended to be autistic to stop his family from fighting and keeping them together. But despite his best efforts, Peggy is about to leave. And at this moment, he's just going to come out and say it. He's not autistic. He's been faking it this entire time. And then Peggy passes out. And then Peggy passes out. And this is... I'm just going to say, I'm going to take advantage of our explicit label. This is fucked up. (laughs) There is... And like he tries to start justifying it. But there is like literally no way to justify this. This is so like on like a creative level on like to the writers. This was this is so gross and irresponsible and like fucked up. Yeah, it's a pretty it's very messed up. Like the idea that he could fake autism and he's like everybody was trying to look for something wrong with me. Yeah, they were like, what about the doctors? Oh, they were trying to find something wrong with me. <sighs> Man. It's- uh, and he just like leaned into And the only person who knew before this was Zeke. Yeah, Zeke apparently has known this entire time. And I guess he, yeah, he made a deal with Lionel or something. He made a bet. Yeah, a bet that he couldn't keep it going. Ira obviously is very upset. He calls Lionel the devil, which, I mean, it's a pretty messed up thing to do. They try to, like, write him sympathetically to be like, I just, like, really wanted to keep our family together. And, like, this was the only way I knew how because he would be so focused on me. If I had an episode, then all the, like the fighting would always stop. And, you know, once he started doing this, he didn't know how to stop. And I guess at first he was just like a late talker. But 
I don't know. I also feel like the like sort of capacity to start doing this at such a young age is truly concerning. Like in a way, you have to think about too. It was probably I'm not trying to rationalize or justify what he did, but it was probably maybe at a young age he learned he just realized that like having random tantrums was like what happened and then as they kept going to doctor's appointments, they just developed the theory that he was autistic and so and he just like leaned into it. Yeah. Yeah, but, like, you have to think, too, about, like, okay, so how messed up is this family for, like... It's very messed up. <laughs> for, like, a child to feel... Then you start thinking about, okay, so, like, how traumatized is this child? Very. By, like... Gordo is... <laughs> Gordo is so traumatized. I couldn't stink so bad without you. So that is, like, the worst... There's a silver lining for Ira, at least. Yeah, but, like, worse in terms of, like, the message of the movie so it turns out that apparently lionel has been collecting receipts because each receipt has a merchant authorization number and so he's been using those merchant authorization numbers to float between approval and actual debit and he's been using that i guess to trade and like just kind of like siphon off money from these companies and so he's essentially stolen 1.5 million dollars yeah, he's a hacker. He's a hacker, but like a thief, you know, like this yeah. is a crime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's like really impressed by this, but like it doesn't like mask the fact that this is, you know, theft. Yeah. Ira knew he was a savant. Yeah. Did I get this correctly? He's supposed to be like 14. Yeah, I guess. Because didn't the, the whole bet was Zeke said that he couldn't keep this going. Like he would crack by his 15th birthday. Yeah, something like that, which... I don't know why, but it just seems like Ben Feldman was so much older than Adam Lamberg. Oh, well, because Ben Feldman I guess Feldman that's just because we know Ben Feldman now. <laughs> well, because Ben Feldman is fully 25 at the time of filming this movie, playing a teenager. Ben Feldman is also but ageless. Adam, Adam Lamberg, born in 1984. This movie came out in 2005. So <laughs> I guess that would make him 20? Yeah. I think, it's the, I think the issue is that Ben Feldman is an ageless god and he looks the same 15 years ago <laughs> as he looks now yeah we're, um, we're big ben feldman fans we really here. are i love he, ben feldman he, he truly is the new paul rudd he truly carried this movie on his back i think that all of most of the laugh out loud lines for me were a ben feldman line he just looks like jonah here though like he that's what that's the problem it was hard to dissociate but yeah that whole thing was gross <sighs> gross Peggy was the only one who was like, all of that money is going to like the autistic society or whatever, like as if, but Nikki wants it for her sex company. Yeah. Everybody's um, immediately like, you have all this money. Can I have some? Ugh. Uh, and then it starts to rain and the tent starts to leak because Rafi's a liar and the tent is not waterproof. <laughs> and so they all make their way inside and yeah, they all have their own exodus. Ira's kind of made all of ira feels rather that he's kind of made all of these steps to try to reconcile with his family he's told peggy now that they'll do things her way from now on but he sees the picture of his brother come to life and his brother says that when the drugs wear off everything will go back to the way it was before like even though you may have had these moments with your family nothing's really changed. Everything's going to go back to the way it was before, which was just equally as dysfunctional as the episodes that we just saw. It's weird because they present it like Lionel's episode is actually kind of like what brings this whole family together. 
like everything is kind of okay after that. It's almost like that was what the family needed to really just look at themselves and kind of the mess that they are, which is strange. Yeah. Because after that, things kind of wrap themselves up pretty quickly. Yeah. Iris says he's going to be a better man. Yeah, Iris says that he's going to be a better man. He's going to be a better husband to Peggy. You know, he and Ethan have a conversation about how Ethan doesn't want what Ira has. Like, he doesn't, even though Ira's kind of like holding a spot for him at the Santa Ball company, he doesn't want to make Santa Balls. Iris says that, you know, maybe they just don't know each other that well. And he asks Ethan if they want to get, if he wants to get lunch with him. Like, all these moments start to happen that just seem kind of like... I don't know, you were all fighting and so dysfunctional two seconds ago. <laughs> well, I think it's driven more by the the conversation that Ira has with his father. But that happens after. So Grandpa's carried around a suitcase for 60 years because he's ready to pack up and leave so whenever. Sad. That is so, like, that honestly makes me, like, a little, like, emotional. Like, yeah. a, little, a little choked up, like, ooh. like. And this has had a negative effect on Ira because it's always felt to Ira that he has never been enough for his father and that his father is just always like waiting for his wife and his other kids to come back but Ira's like but I'm still here and you never really paid attention to me and like grandpa and Ira were the only survivors from their family from their immediate family from the holocaust so like mother was killed his sister was killed his brothers were killed yeah and so there's the yeah the yeah. survivor's guilt and Grandpa just breaks down, and he's just like, I miss my family. And I was like, obviously, I miss them also. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Heartbreaking. And it was just, like, heartbreaking and confusing because it felt like this sort of moment came at us out of nowhere. It's almost like that story enough, I feel like, is a lot for most movies to just go on. Like, that's a relationship that can be explored very deeply that we kind of got thrown at us in... Yeah the last 10 minutes of the movie. I know. It, it really, like, imagine what this movie could have been if it was literally just about generational trauma. Like, if it was about Ira and his, the main relationships explored were his with his father and him and Ethan. Yeah. Like, that. that's the heart of the movie, but it's delivered in such a, it doesn't get the time to actually be the heart of the movie. Yeah, the heart, they try to present the heart of the movie as his relationship with Peggy because his last big speech of the movie is to Peggy. And it's about the apology that he owes to her for his affair, which I think we didn't even mention. He had an affair on Peggy. <laughs> he cheated because on that him. came out of nowhere. All of these things just, it was like- they That kept... was another gen bomb. <laughs> <laughs> it was like they kept throwing shit at the wall. It's like, what sticks? Yeah, he had an affair. And then he tries to over-explain his affair. We kissed, <laughs> yeah. we went to a hotel, but I left before and we Ethan did anything. like, dad, dad, stop, stop. <laughs> Please. And he apologizes for neglecting Peggy for years and years. And he swears he's not that man anymore. And Peggy's like, okay. I just did not need this. Yeah, they missed the mark on what really made the movie, like the best moments of the movie, in my opinion. Yeah. Because this movie was not about Ira and Peggy. And we got this weird, like, psychedelic, trippy. It would, like, flash back and forth between, like, younger versions of them. And, like... (laughs) And then in a, a moment of growth, Rafi is about to leave and Ira asks him to stay. And then he lets Ethan finally sing he, his melody. And then there's a, the doorbell rings and Zeke goes to answer it. And it's his dealer. And we learn that 
the dealer got messed up. He hadn't actually given Zeke ecstasy. He'd given him just plain old aspirin. So, like, what happened? <laughs> so Ira just fully went off the rails, and now he's a changed man because of one aspirin. Like, did he have a heart? Did he have like a heart attack, like near death experience? Like, what happened? I don't. Because to me, like, I get the sort of intent of, oh, this was a placebo effect. This is all of these deep things that he's been feeling for a real time. But there were way too many trippy um, special effects. <laughs> to like make that make sense yeah he gives zeke the ecstasy that he actually paid for and zeke in, in a, a moment, moment of, of growth in a moment <laughs> of growth yeah it's like nah nah bro i'm off drugs now <laughs> and just throws the pill into a bush and he goes back inside where everybody is singing and everybody is happy and um ira and raffi are talking about like setting up the tent for next year and then ira's like no next year we'll have this in jerusalem which seems like a big jump. <laughs> like, it's just going to all fly out to Jerusalem for Passover. And that's it. That's the movie. Also, did we? Did you talk about how the concluding moment between Ira and Ethan? What do you mean? About the sort of connection that Ira finally made of, like, I was doing to Ethan what my dad did to me. I don't think I said it that like that. I mean, I mentioned that they needed to, they reconciled a little bit. Well, but that's but, like, that's like the key sort yeah. of moment though, is like that moment with his father leads into this moment with Ethan where he's like, oh, I'm doing to Ethan what my father did to me with in terms of like following the family business. Yeah. And he says he's not going to do that anymore. This <laughs> is the story that matters. That was When Do We Eat? And you asked me before we started the podcast, like what I would comp this to. I think the closest thing that is coming to mind right off the bat for me is the family stone, just because it's another kind of like big family kind of holiday movie. Um, obviously, that movie is a little bit different. I think the plot's a little bit clearer in that movie, but I think that's the closest comp that's coming to mind right off the bat. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie, but I'll I don't take know. Do you have any comps? Not nothing coming to mind. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> about like is Ethan still Hasidic is I mean there's that I think that the relationship between Nikki and Peggy is kind of still like whatever like I don't think that Nikki's story was really I don't know did that get resolved yeah that didn't get resolved I don't think that like Jen's feelings of resentment are resolved nor should they be her family sucks yeah um, I mean there was still there's still the moment like when essentially Ira's like, it's my fault that you're gay, which I feel like, no. Where she's just like, no. I mean, she really shuts that down. Yeah. Real fast, which I appreciate. Like, I'd be gay whether you were an asshole or not. That's yeah. not how it works, Dad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> again, like, will Vanessa and Ethan get it on again? Likely. Yeah, are they a couple now? <laughs> 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 it's hard to tell. It seems like Peggy is more angry at Ethan than she is at Vanessa. She should be mad at both of them equally. Yeah. And also Vanessa should not be invited to any more staters. <laughs> Cut her out. Yeah. I just, I also don't understand why Roth, why Rafi was ever there, invited to stay. That whole thing, confusing. Concluding um, thoughts. Concluding thoughts. I mean, I think it's pretty along the lines of what we've already been kind of mentioning this whole time, but like this movie had some good moments. And I thought actually the best moments of this movie was not the comedy because I thought the comedy was like mostly a miss, honestly. I didn't think it was especially sharp. The best moments of this movie actually were the really deep family 
elements of it. Like, I felt like if this movie maybe wasn't a comedy, they could have explored a lot more. But it's like because they had to force these jokes. I don't know. I think that they could have gotten a lot more across if they had not done that. I agree. I like really appreciated the exploration of generational trauma without it being like an on the nose Holocaust story. Because like when we talk about like representation and Jewish representation in particular, that is the main event typically is Holocaust narratives and um, what I like to call like Gentile savior narratives Mm -hmm. Um, where it's not even really about the Jewish characters. It's more about the non-Jewish people who like sympathize and save them. And that's typically the most mainstream way that Jewish people are depicted in the media in Jewish, in like specifically Jewish stories. So like I did appreciate the concept of this and like the fact that it's just a family, a modern family and a Passover Seder and exploring the past and like, the trauma from the Holocaust in a modern familial context. Like I thought the conceit of this film was very interesting to me and very great, but the execution just left so much to be desired. So So if you're going to watch this movie, get a couple drinks in you. (laughs) (laughs) I think that you can skip it. If you took the time to listen to this. (laughs) Yeah. If you listen to this podcast, (laughs) just as long as the movie. (laughs) Um, you can probably skip it. I mean, not a, if we're going if we're tying it back to Lizzie McGuire, not a great post Lizzie McGuire <laughs> debut for Adam Lamberg. It explains why he hasn't done much since. Um, unfortunately, he did seem very Gordo like in this movie. I will say his outfit, if we can touch on outfits a little bit, is yeah. still very reminiscent of Gordo. I think we've mentioned kind of the outfits along the way, or at least the outfits that really matter. I'm talking primarily about Zeke's 420 shirt. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, Gordo's still wearing a button down that's a little bit too big for him. Did I just call him Gordo again? You did just call him Gordo again. Sorry, Lionel. But yeah, everyone else is pretty much just like, if you put yourself back in like 2005, just in the era of 2005, that's pretty much just like what you're wear- what you would picture most people wearing, except for Grandpa. The hat business may be closed, but he is still rocking his hat. He is. It's a nice, like, brown bowler. Zeke's wearing a hat throughout the entire episode, too, like a beanie. I keep thinking about, like, imagining a person on the other side of, like... Wait, there was a post credit scene. Oh, my God! So there's a post credit scene, and in the post credit scene, Zeke, it's the middle of the night, he comes out with a flashlight, and he starts looking through the bushes for, for his, his ecstasy <laughs> that he had thrown earlier, so... Uh, I think that's a pretty clear segue into our MVP of the movie, which has to be Ben Feldman. Ben Ben Feldman. I mean, I have already said multiple times that Ben Feldman carried this movie on his back. I think that (laughs) you're right. Like the comedy that like wasn't there for the most part, but anytime it was, it was a line that came out of Ben Feldman's mouth. He made the movie for me. I agree. Yeah, he had the best one-liners, I think. And honestly, the movie is all his fault. Like, the MVP should go to the person who slipped Michael or Michael Lerner, Ira, the ecstasy. It's yeah. it's Ben Feldman. He made this all happen. He made this all happen. He is our Jewish Paul Rudd. <laughs> um, I wasn't familiar with Ben Feldman before Superstore. Um, you never watched A to Z? I watched A to Z in a college class, like the pilot of it. I watched the pilot of it, too. But I didn't, it got canceled. We didn't make it. It got off. canceled, but it, it we, went on for a season. We didn't make it to Z, though. We did, <laughs> we did not get to Z. That's true. 
But I think that was when I was first introduced to Ben Feldman. But obviously, he's been in a lot of other things since then. I saw, I've saw i seen him in um, Silicon Valley. He had a recurring role in that. I didn't realize this, but he was in Mad Men. He was in oh. 29 episodes of Mad Men. Oh, I knew that. But I didn't watch Mad Men, so I haven't seen him. He was in two episodes of The Mindy Project. Yes, he was. Oh, so you would have known him from that. But, like, I, I guess, like, who he is as an actor, I guess I wasn't familiar with until Superstore. This was actually the... The first big role that he got. This was like his breakout role. This movie was the launching pad for Ben Feldman's <laughs> career. Yeah, because then he got his Cloverfield role. Oh my God. You've never seen Cloverfield, have you? No. It's like found footage, monster crushes New York. I don't know. It makes me dizzy. I can't, <laughs> I can't really do They were going to remake it recently, or they did remake it recently. They did. Right? Yeah. Okay. So all, the, all of our love to Benjamin. I feel like I wanted this to devolve into a... Ben Feldman Appreciation Podcast, and we got there, so I'm satisfied. <laughs> okay, like I was saying to you yesterday, I'm glad that we started with this movie because although I had high expectations for it, I think it fell short of my expectations. I really thought that it had a great cast and it had a lot of potential, but obviously I think that it maybe like, I feel like now we can gain steam from here as opposed to if we had put this at the end and lost steam along the way. So I feel like, yeah, like you just said, it's only up from here, and that starts next week. I mean, yeah, I think our lineup is a testament to how it's only going to go up for here, from here because next week we are going to recap Celebrity Wife Swap, but, like, the men edition, because, like, the, me- the husbands are going to swap in this episode, and the husbands that are swapping are Robert Carradine, Sam McGuire, and Terrell T. O. Owens. I can't wait for that. I'm so excited. I We watched the episode preview, and I can already tell it's going to be a treat. It's going to be crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like, um, as far as, like, you know, like, listings go, it looks like this was the last episode of Celebrity Wife Swap ever. Oh, my goodness. This could have been what killed it. <laughs> <laughs> I probably... Like, I feel like I vaguely remember watching this in real time because I definitely, I watched Wife Swap. It's definitely a show that your parents, it falls into that <laughs> genre of shows that your parents watch. Oh, yeah. We, like, it, I definitely have, I feel like it will all come back to it's me. It's like a network format or a broadcast format show. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I definitely, like, I have vivid, like, I remember seeing the episode, the Bachelor episode of Celebrity Wife Swap where um, Sean Lowe and Jason Mesnick's wives swapped. Yeah, this was a show of my past. Well, we're um, going to dive into it for you next week. Yeah, I can't wait. And then the week after, we're going to talk about my favorite movie. So, <laughs> You've said that about at least like a dozen movies. You're like, this is my favorite movie. Okay, but like a Cinderella story You can is... only have one favorite movie. Okay, but a Cinderella story, I think... Is that this movie? I feel like it's my favorite movie in Hilary Duff's filmography. I can oh, say okay, that so now there's a... <laughs> So it's not your favorite movie. It's up there, though. Like, it is, I can probably, I mean, no, well, you know 10 Things I Hate About You is my favorite, favorite movie. Your favorite, favorite yeah, movie. Yeah, like, it's, like, top tier. Okay. But, like, A Cinderella Story is one of the movies I most rewatched as a child. I have the DVD of it. We will be watching the DVD of it. We don't have to, like, do, like, a one ninety nine ninety nine cent rental of it because I got mm. it. Sounds good to me. Anything yeah. left to touch upon in this podcast? We've been going for long enough. 
Yeah, I'm I agree. like, who's going to listen to this? I Yeah, I agree. All right. So I think that's it. We'll see you next week with Celebrity Wife Swap, Robert Carradine, and Terrell Owens. <laughs>